Good morning. And would you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And find verse 22. John 3, 22 is where we'll start reading here in just a couple of minutes. I remember hearing several years ago John MacArthur make a comment that the last words of a man are probably something worth listening to. He said that in the context of some of Jesus' final words of instruction and warning to his disciples. And I was always struck by, by the way that he put that. Uh, this morning and next week, we're going to do something similar to that. We're going to look at the last words of instruction that are recorded from a couple of biblical figures. This morning, we're going to hear from John the Baptist. And next week, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he wrote in 2 Timothy some of his final words to his uh, disciple Timothy. And I want us to see these two passages uh, as contributing together toward our understanding of our union with Christ. Both of these are going to inform uh, us in different ways in terms of how we think of and how we value the union that we have with our Savior. Uh, This morning we're going to hear from John the Baptist as to uh, just why it is so desirable that we should be in union with our Savior. And next week Paul's going to speak to us and display for us in his life Uh, more of the effect of what that union produces in the life of of a Christian. Union with Christ, this is a a biblical concept that is uh, heavy. It's rich, it's deep, it's spoken of in many places in the Bible, and it's the sort of thing that we hear about and we realize this, this is something that takes a great deal of time and thought and meditation, probably more than than we are often uh, willing to give it. Uh, one of the passages that speaks to this is Romans chapter 6. Uh, and we, we read things there like um, descriptions of us, such as that we have been buried with Christ in his death. And we will be raised with Christ in his resurrection. Profound truths. In fact, the Bible speaks of our unity with Christ in a number of, of different uh, realms. It speaks of our union with him in his death, Romans 6, uh, and our union with him in his burial, Romans 6. It speaks of our union with Christ in his resurrection, Colossians chapter 3. Our union with Christ in his ascension, just imagine that. We are united with Christ as he ascends in victory to the Father. Uh, we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. We're united with Christ, the Bible says, in his reign. And we are united to Christ in his glory, according to Romans 8, 17. Uh, What we want to do this morning is a little bit more simple than all of that. We simply want to hear John the Baptist and John the Apostle, as he is commenting on it, uh, simply hear John lay out a description for us of just how glorious is the one that we're united to. The focus in our passage this morning is not on us, in our union with Christ, but rather the focus is on Jesus. Uh, John is going to hold him up as someone who is so valuable, so preeminently valuable, that to be united with him is our greatest desire. 
It's amazing to think about the, the, the reality that we know we have to look forward to as Christians. The reality for you, believer, of your glorious, joy-filled, eternal future is true for one reason. And that is because of the unmatched glory of your Lord and Savior, who the Bible says you, by faith, have been united to. And so let's take time this morning and just hear and be reminded of, reflect together again on why Jesus is such a big deal to us, why he is so eternally valuable. Our focus this morning will be on verses 31 through 36, uh, but we'll start reading in verse 22. So if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read John 3, 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you can be seated. And would you pray with me as we begin? Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for allowing us to be together as a church family to sit under its preaching. And God, we ask that you would bless us in this. We know of our own past, that we have been blind people. You tell us that before we came to know your Son and to trust in Him, our eyes were blinded so that we might not see the glory of the gospel of Christ, but you have opened our eyes. And so, Lord, we ask you in your faithfulness to open our hearts and minds to this word that we might be changed by it, that we might be changed at the sight of Jesus that you're allowing us to put in front of ourselves This morning, we thank you for this mercy and this great grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
There is a lot that this passage has to say to us this morning. But in the end, what it is going to commend to us is the fact that there is nothing that we desire more than to be united to one like this, to this Lord, this one that's being described in our passage. The scene is set up for us in verses 22 through 26. Now, what's happening here is that John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, have been noticing something. As John the Baptist is continuing his ministry, someone else now has begun a ministry as well, and that person is Jesus. They know that their master bore witness to him, and now he's beginning to teach. Crowds are beginning to come to him. And John the Baptist's disciples are noticing this. And it seems that they are not happy about this. It seems that they view this as a competition with their master, with John the Baptist. They come in verse 26 and they say to John, Look, he is baptizing. You're John the Baptist. He's baptizing. And all are going to him. This sounds like some sort of an objection or a complaint, and it also seems like they're expecting John to feel the same way that they do. In spite of what he has said about this man already, do you remember what John has said about Jesus and the comparison between the two? Do you remember when John said that he wasn't even worthy to bend down and untie the strap of the sandal of this man? That's what John has said about his, uh, him in comparison to Jesus. And his disciples seem to have been there for at least some of this. They know that John has borne witness to Jesus, but they're not getting this. And so John responds to them with an analogy. And this analogy has three characters. It has a bride, a bridegroom, and a friend of the bridegroom. And if you were here in Sunday school, Dennis mentioned something of this role of this friend of the bridegroom Um, In the analogy here, John the Baptist is playing that role. John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. And we, and John hopes his disciples, are the bride. And the analogy fits really well with what John's role has been here as a forerunner to Christ. Listen to how this role of the friend of the bridegroom is described when, when man wrote of it. And said, according to the marriage customs of the Jews, there were certain persons called the bridegroom's friends who were the means of communication between him and the bride before the marriage. Their duty was simply to set forward and promote the bridegroom's interests and to remove all obstacles as far as possible to a speedy union of the two parties. To accomplish this end and promote as thoroughly to promote a thoroughly good understanding between the bride and bridegroom was their sole office. If they saw the bridegroom's suit prospering and at last saw him received favorably and gladly by the bride, their end was accomplished and their work was done. And do you see how that matches with what John the Baptist has been sent to do? To prepare the way for Christ so that when he arrives, there would be a people, his bride, ready to be received by him with no obstacles. And you can imagine him saying to his disciples, um, you should be as happy as I am uh, that some are coming to join with Christ. You should want to be joined with him as much as I want you to be joined with him. It seems in this analogy that the friend is more excited about this marriage than the bride is. 
And if we ask ourselves, what is it that is holding these disciples of John the Baptist back? What's the obstacle uh, between them and a right understanding of this? It would seem that the answer is that they don't yet understand the value of this man, Jesus, who is now teaching and baptizing. They failed to grasp his value. And that's the, that's the problem that John is addressing in our passage, beginning in verse 31. He is going to set before his disciples. And thanks to the Holy Spirit, we're going to have them set before us this morning. Uh, reasons that Jesus is so far superior to John the Baptist or any other human teacher. So these are arguments for the preeminence of Christ. And we're going to see three of these, beginning in verse 31. Now, just to get one quick thing out of the way here, there's a little bit of a, of a confusion point when we get into verse 31. Who exactly is speaking here? And depending on which Bible translation you have, it may uh, go one way or the other. There are no quotation marks. So is this, is this John the Baptist still talking to his disciples? Or did he finish what he was going to say in uh, verse 30? And now John the Apostle is writing and explaining, fleshing out more in terms of what, uh, what the significance is of John the Baptist's words. Um, I, I lean toward the idea that this is now John the Apostle explaining and fleshing out more. Uh, but different translations do this differently. If you have a New American Standard Bible, there, uh, you'll see that the, there's no end quotation mark, so they think this is still John the Baptist. If you have an ESV, a Christian Standard Bible, NIV, uh, they are taking this now as John the Apostle, John the one who's writing the gospel, uh, speaking more. It, it doesn't make any difference in terms of the value and the meaning of the words, um, but there is that, that difference there. The nice thing is both of them are named John, so I'm just going to say that John said, and whichever one of them is the case, I'm right, and we can just put that aside, and we don't have to, to worry about it anymore. All right. So there is that. But we're going to see now three arguments, three reasons that Jesus is preeminent. The first one we see in verse 31, and that is that Jesus is preeminent in his origin. In his origin. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is the first reason. It's the only one of the three that explicitly gives a comparison between Jesus and the rest. All of them involve comparison, but this is the only one that, that explicitly describes the comparison here. You have Jesus coming from above, coming from heaven, as opposed to any other teacher, and in this context, John the Baptist, who is not from above. He is from the earth. And so if John is the one saying this, he's saying, look, disciples, this other man is not from here. He is from heaven. I, on the other hand, am from the earth, and so I speak in an earthly way. I belong to the earth. There, now, there's a word that can be used uh, that means earth or world that, uh, that describes sinfulness. That's not the word that's being used here. So to say that John the Baptist is of the earth and speaking in an earthly way, it's not a commentary on his sinfulness or, or wickedness of words. That's not the problem. This is a word that describes limitation, finitude. right? So it's just an expression of the difference between the two. John the Baptist would be saying then, I am finite. I'm of dust. 
And I'm only able to speak as one of the dust is able to speak. But that's not true of Jesus. Jesus is not of the earth. He comes from above. It's important that we see this as a comparison. It's true by way of comparison between the two. Um, if, if we were to change the comparison, let's say we, we compared in this way John the Baptist and his words with the Pharisees and their words. We could, we could speak of it in different terms. In, those, in that case, we could say John the Baptist is speaking a message he has received that is heavenly, and it is true as opposed to the Pharisees, who in Matthew 15, they're described as blind guides leading the blind. Right? It, John, John is described in this way earthly as we compare him to this one that is so far superior to him. I heard it described um, or read earlier this week about uh, a, a candle you might hold in your, in your hands. If you light a small candle and go into, let's say, Carlsbad Caverns, when they shut off all the lights, it can be hard to even look at that candle at first because the, the light would be such a stark contrast to all of the pitch black darkness around you, right? And in that contrast, this is quite a bright light. But take the same candle out into the blazing noonday sun, and what does that do to the brilliance and light of that candle? Now it's, it's a poor, dim spark. This is the comparison that we see here. And it's, it's significant for us, I think, to remember, uh, to remember it in this way, because what it tells us is that the truth and the light that Jesus brings is something fundamentally different than the truth that a good teacher, like John the Baptist, is able to bring to us. We have to constantly be protecting and reestablishing our beliefs and our feelings about the words of Christ. Uh, it's, it's not just that what Jesus says to us is true. That is the case, of course. Everything that Jesus has spoken to us is true. But there are plenty of things, aren't there, in this world that are true, that are, its truth is plain to us, it's visible. I can, I can see that it's true. Romans 1 describes God's power and divine nature, for example, as being just visibly true through natural revelation. Right? Those things are the case. Um, with Jesus, though, we have something unique. Uh, there are other things that are true that we could never know unless they were revealed to us, unless they were brought to us. And this is why the origin of Christ is such a significant marker of his superiority. He comes from above. He comes from heaven. He has access to heavenly realities that we have no access to unless someone brings them to us. You see? He is unique in this. So he is preeminent in his origin. The second way that Jesus is described here as preeminent uh, is in verses 32 and 33. Jesus is preeminent in his words. And this connects to the first one. It connects to the origin of Christ. Look again at verse 32. Speaking of Jesus, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, John is pointing out two things here about how Jesus' words are, are superior. The, and the first one touches with the origin of Christ. Jesus' words are superior. They rightly take first place because as the one who came from heaven, 
Well, what is he doing when he speaks now? He is bearing witness to what he himself has seen and heard. He speaks as one fundamentally different than every other human teacher has ever spoken. And it's because of where he has come from, but that fleshes itself out in the way he speaks and the words that he speaks. And that difference was recognized over and over again when he was on earth, when he was traveling, teaching, discipling. People noticed this difference. It was tangible. Think of what was said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Verses 28 and 29, it said, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They knew right away that what they were hearing here was not the same thing as what they had been hearing from their respected teachers all of their lives. John chapter 7, verse 46, quotes... And I just, I like to imagine this. This is an officer who has been sent, it would seem, to apprehend Jesus and take him to be, um, to be interrogated. And those guys have wartime experience. I just, I'm sure he was not a scrawny guy, and I'm sure he was not a man who walked around without authority. I think he went there knowing he had a job to do. Um, and then... He, he, he gets there, and he hears Jesus talking. And this man is so undone by this that he stumbles back to where he was supposed to have brought Jesus. And they're mad because he's there with, he's empty-handed. And they say, why didn't you bring him? And all he can bring himself to say is, no one ever spoke like this man. It was, it was a tangible difference in his words. And what is it that he was doing that was just so different? I think we have, uh, we, we have evidence of, of the very things he spoke, the sorts of things he said that displayed this uniqueness in him, in his origin and in his words. Time and time again, isn't it true that he says, as he's teaching those who are listening to him, you have heard it said by others, but I say to you. You remember all of the times he says that? He does not do the sort of thing that, for example, I'm going to do this morning a couple of times. And that is, quote, other respected teachers and appeal to their respect and authority to gain credence to the truthfulness of what's being spoken here. Jesus does never, he doesn't do that. He speaks from what he has seen and heard. And when he speaks, he speaks with his own authority, self-attesting. And when he does this, everyone who hears goes, I've never heard anything like this before. This is unique. It's also part of what makes it so remarkable that what John predicts in this verse is going to come to pass. End of verse 32. In spite of the complete uniqueness of this one and of his words, the from heaven perspective, the authority that it carries with it, in spite of that, John will say here, yet no one receives his testimony. He obviously does not mean no one, because the next words he says are, whoever receives his testimony. So he doesn't mean no person, but in comparison to the crowds coming to Jesus, and I think he's just directly responding to his disciples. Remember what they said in verse 26? Look, he is baptizing, and what? All are coming to him. And he responds to them and says, well, 
there may be large crowds coming to him, but compared to the large crowds, those who are receiving his testimony, you may as well say it, no one receives his testimony. Jesus spoke of this to the crowds. John 6, 26, when he explained to them, you're here not to, to use these words, you're not here to receive my testimony. You're here because I gave you bread. That's why you're here. Few receive the testimony of this one who comes. And it's not because he's not from the right place, and it's not because he's not speaking words that are clearly and undeniably powerful and true It's because we are haters of God by nature. And when we hear the words of God, when the light of God comes to us, the Bible says we flee from that light. Lest our evil deeds be exposed. So the first thing that is pointed to as far as Jesus' superior words is this, that they are spoken with direct authority of one who has personally seen and heard the heavenly things about which he is Speaking, the second statement that John makes about the superiority of Jesus' words, look at verse 33. This is tremendous. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Just how preeminent are Jesus' words? I'll tell you. Anyone who doesn't receive what he has said is by definition calling God a liar. That's how superior, that's how perfect Jesus' words are. To to reject Jesus' words is the same thing as to call God a liar. Now, you may know some people who respond to disagreement in a way very similar to that, who, who think of themselves in a way like that. To disagree with me is to call God a liar. That's, I am, I am overwhelmed. How dare you disagree with me? Do you understand what you're what you're doing? Uh, let me just make it very well. We know, don't we? It's not very pleasant to talk to people like that, to be involved in conversation like that. And I hope we understand. Depending on what we're talking about, I can disagree with you without impugning the truthfulness of God Almighty, can't I? That's what's so profound here. That's not true about Jesus. You can't disagree with Jesus without successfully calling God the Father a liar. You cannot do it. And that's true in at least two ways. The first is that this clearly points to the divinity of Christ, doesn't it? It matches what he said about himself. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. What a thing to say. What earthly teacher can say such a thing? To reject Jesus' claims is to reject God's claims because Jesus is God. Jesus is not the Father, but Jesus is divine. And there is perfect agreement between the Father and the Son. That's one thing that's attested to here. But secondly, and I think even more directly to this passage, it's not just a statement about Jesus' equality with the Father in terms of their being. It's specifically Jesus' testimony that's described here, isn't it? His testimony. Uh, listen to John twelve forty nine. Listen to how Jesus describes his testimony. He said there, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. 
And I know that his commandment is eternal life. How does he know that, by the way? I've been with him from eternity past. I have perfect fellowship with him. He only knows that if he's from above. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus equates his testimony with that of the Father. This puts his words in a category utterly other than every other category of human speech. We, we learn something else in that verse as well uh, from the expression that he uses in verse 33. Do you see that expression? Depending on your translation, it may say something different. In the ESV, it, it reads this way, Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He sets his seal to the truthfulness of God. There are other places where a seal is said to be set, and if we hear them together, I think we see a very powerful connection. Um, John 6.27 is another place where a seal is said to be set, and it says there that on Jesus... God the Father has set his seal. Right? So there's one. The Father has set his seal on the Son. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So there's places like this in Ephesians 1 that tell us that God in, in, in rescuing us, he has set his seal on us. And it is the seal of the Holy Spirit of promise poured out on us. Do you see the connection between these? God sets his seal on me as he gives me the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads me to affirm and, and, and agree with Jesus' testimony. And as I agree with Jesus' testimony, I am setting my seal on the truthfulness of God. There is a reciprocal relationship there. So we could say this then. We could say that must mean that to have true faith in God is to believe the word of Christ, to believe the testimony of Christ. It's what undergirds all of what faithfulness looks like. And we'll see that briefly next week. Um, we'll read John 6, 29, uh, where, where Jesus says, this is the, listen to this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is it that undergirds and explains and provides the basis for all of the obedience that we are called to? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's powerful. And only about Jesus can these things be said. It is only ever universally true of Jesus to say that to refuse his testimony is to call God a liar. 1 John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. It's like we've got two ropes here and we're just tying knot after knot after knot. You can't get these things apart from each other. That is preeminence. To say that about Jesus' words, that is preeminence in his words. It's superior to anything any mere man could ever say or have said of him. So Jesus is preeminent in his origin. 
He has come from above. He's come from heaven. He's preeminent in his words. And then third and finally, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus is preeminent in his resources. Look with me there. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, we don't have an explicit comparison here, but it's definitely a comparison, and it's easy to see. Jesus, in his humanity, was given the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 38, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. He was given the same Holy Spirit that uh, you have been given. If you've trusted in Christ, I've been given. John the Baptist has been given. Uh, We are given the Spirit by the Father. He has received the Spirit, but it's not exactly the same. Can, can you hear the difference in this verse? What's the difference he points out here? It comes down to a specific word. You notice he uses the word measure. Measure. God gave the man Jesus Christ the Spirit without measure. Literally, it says he did not give him the Holy Spirit by measure. Now, I thought a lot about how to do this, that we'd lack the time and we don't want to get into a rabbit trail. But this does raise an important issue for us and and something that has to be understood for us to understand what they're saying here. uh, Because this speaks to us about how the Holy Spirit works in us, right? So I just want to give you, I thought, let's just do, let's just remind ourselves of three truths, okay? And we'll do this quickly. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person, isn't he? He's a person, he's not a force. He's not a substance. He's a person. And what that means is you either have him or you don't. You cannot receive a part of a person, can you? God gives us the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance. That's the first reminder. The second, though, is connected to it, and all of these are connected to each other. The second is that when the Bible speaks of filling by the Holy Spirit or filling with the Holy Spirit, it refers to the effects of of the Holy Spirit's work in us and through us. So, for example, Ephesians 5.18 will will give us a command. Be being filled with the Spirit. Wait, I thought we just said he's a person, so you either have him or you don't have him. What do you mean, be being filled with the Spirit? Well, we have to remember that the Bible uses that language to describe the the being filled with the fruit of the Spirit, with the effect of the Spirit in our lives. And that's a command for us to pursue. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of having a part of Him, but we we have limitations at times in our uh, our Spirit-filledness as the life of the life-giving vine pours out of us. And this leads to the third reminder for us, and that is that Holy Spirit empowered work or fruit or effectiveness, well, it varies from person to person, doesn't it? If we had every person that's been a believer that, that was saved seven years ago stand up, we could not say that those people are equally filled with the Spirit in every way. It's all the same because they've been saved the same amount of time. That's not the way that the Christian life works, is it? We understand that. There, there are differences in our um, outflow of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Some of that is because of sin, but some of it is by God's design. He has given us the Spirit, get this, by measure, 
Not the person of the Spirit, but the fruits of the Spirit. And so this is why the Bible will say the life of the body is so important. Because I have been gifted by the Spirit and equipped by the Spirit. And I'm growing in the Spirit in certain ways that you are not. You need me. You have been gifted by the Spirit and prepared by the Spirit and equipped by the Spirit in certain ways that I have not. And so I need you. This is the picture in the Bible of the body working together, different parts. Right? We do not all have the same manifestations of the Spirit in the same ways. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 is something to write down if you're taking notes in this. Uh, and especially verse 7. Verses 4 through 6 tell us that we've all received the same baptism of the Holy Spirit when we're saved. But then verse 7 says this. It tells us that God gives us grace according to the, here's the word again, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's given by measure. But see, that's the distinction that verse 34 is making in our passage. Jesus has not been given the Holy Spirit by measure. If we're thinking of fruit and, and vital connection with, 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 the, with, with divine uh, life and blessing and everything that comes as a result of these things, we have been measured out our portion according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has not had the Holy Spirit measured out to him. It has been dumped. It has been poured without any attempt to measure. And so what's the result in the passage? Well, the result is, to put it simply, he speaks the words of God. Every time he opens his mouth and speaks, the words of God are flowing out of his mouth. Is that true of you? Every time you open your mouth and speak, are the words of God flowing out of your mouth? There are times when the words of God are flowing out of your mouth, but you can't say that categorically about every bit of your speech. You can of Jesus. Everything he says is the words of God. It's all he does. He is always and everywhere acting out of a perfect storehouse of resources. And so we just step back now and we look at the picture that's being given to us in this passage. This is, this is who your Savior is. This is the one that the Bible promises that when you put him before your face and you meditate on him, that it's actually <clears throat> it's so powerful that it actually changes you. You are being transformed into his likeness as you sit and look at him. This is the picture that we have of him in this passage. He comes to us from above. He only speaks of things that he has seen and heard personally. He reveals truth to us that we could never know apart from his revealing it to us. He alone is so perfectly united to the Father that to reject him is to call God the Father a liar. He alone reveals God's truth 100% of the time because he has been given the Spirit without measure. And in case you're uncertain about what these displays of Jesus' beauty are supposed to evoke in you, Just look at what they evoke in the Father. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And I hear that and I think that's quite a comparison. I hesitate to give all things into His hand. Me. I worry that I worry that maybe my, maybe my problems are too big. 
Maybe I ought not trust him with this. Maybe he won't prove faithful. I worry to put all things into his hand. And God the Father who holds all of the universe and all of time in his hands, he puts all things into Jesus' hand. What does that say about us? What does it say about our doubt? The acting on our part of meditating on Jesus draws us to him. Because beauty always does that. Beauty draws us to it. And what we have set in front of us this morning is a beautiful picture. I would ask you as we close, are you finding your Savior to be beautiful these days? If you're not, it's not because he's not beautiful. The only explanation is that you haven't been putting him in front of you lately. When we meditate on him, when we pray to the Lord to open our eyes to the beauty of his son, he loves that prayer. And we cannot see him without being changed. It is beautiful. These words of John, some of the last that are recorded of his life, are a plea to us to meditate on our Lord so that we would remember why being united with him is such a blessed place. Next week we're going to hear some of the last words of instruction of another man that will speak to us of what this union with this Lord produces. What, what, What happens in my life when I am brought into fellowship and union with someone this great? What happens to me? We'll look at that next week. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we recognize that it is always an act of grace and mercy when you put your Son on display for us to see. It is always convicting because we know ourselves to a degree. We know ourselves well enough to know how often we let the things of this world, the dark, uh, transient, passing away, so-called beauties of this life, which are beauties because you have created them, but in comparison with the light of Christ, they are, they are darkness. We let them distract us. We let our hearts attach to them. And so we thank you every time you bring us back and align our focus on your Son. Lord, bless the hearing of your word today. Cause us not to soon forget this picture that we have seen in John chapter 3. Your son is preeminently beautiful. He is preeminently worthy. And we thank you that in your kindness it pleased you to unite us to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction this morning? From Colossians 3.15, May the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Amen. You're dismissed.